This is One Path with Metro Health, your toolkit for helping to combat the opioid epidemic as a member of the medical community with empathy, mindfulness, and a big picture perspective. I'm Libby Palaya, educator with the Metro Health Department of Opioid Safety. Thanks for joining us. Unsurprisingly, the global pandemic of COVID-19 has played an insidious role in the worsening of the opioid epidemic in the United States. The early months of the pandemic brought an 18% increase nationwide in overdoses compared with the same months of the previous year. Nationwide, fatality numbers have spiked upwards, and in our home state of Ohio, 548 individuals were lost to drug misuse just in the spring of 2020, plus 481 deaths in June and 442 deaths in July. Though the most up-to-date data is still emerging surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on opioid overdose deaths, the most recent data, reflecting October of 2019 through October of 2020, shows that there were just under 92,000 predicted deaths, 30% more deaths than the prior year, This equates to 252 deaths per day due to overdose. The way things are looking, the final total of overdose deaths in 2020 could exceed 95,000, solidifying 2020 as the year with the all-time highest number of overdose deaths and the largest single-year percentage increase in the past 20 years. All of this is incredibly upsetting. And while this data could be seen as only demoralizing and discouraging, it's moving the Office of Opioid Safety at Metro Health to double down on their mission with an even deeper sense of urgency. Our education team in particular has been working hard to adapt their educational content to the times. I am beyond fortunate to work on a team with these remarkable women. It is so important to us as an education team really to inform others just how common substance use disorder as well as mental health conditions are, especially now given the huge impact of COVID-19. So many individuals really do not go and seek the help that they desperately need in a large part because of stigma. That's the voice of Natalie Copeland-Traster of Metro's Office of Opioid Safety Education team. She shared that as a team, They are determined to change the dialogue around issues of addiction and substance use disorder. The educational team is developing curriculum for local school districts as well as local universities um, to discuss SUD, OUD. We've also created trainings that are individualized based on the needs of the audience with presentations that can go anywhere from 10 minutes to four hours or even beyond. Our audiences have varied drastically in age educational needs. Uh, For example, you know, some have focused heavily on resources, stigma, harm reduction, um, the overlap of COVID-19 and mental health. We have hosted opioid safety grand round trainings um, that's open to all Metro Health staff. And we also train new providers and nurses in the emergency department. Additionally, we've also been creating an annual mandated employee education modules. We are all active members of the Cuyahoga County Opiate Task Force, the Heroin and Opioid Action Plan Committee, the Metro Health Opioid Education Subcommittee, the Medina County Opiate Task Force, and the National Opioid Workforce Group. Christine Fishman is a pharmacist working out of the Office of Opioid Safety and acts as a leader of the academic detailing program at Metro Health. Remember the episode we did about prescriber peer review? Academic detailing hooks directly into that process. We have a peer review committee that consists of peer review nurse, 
a case manager nurse, and uh, another pharmacist. Um, and basically what they do is they review the prescribing habits of physicians, and then um, they provide me with some of that information, and I can use that information to kind of have conversations. I don't really target physicians or anybody who has prescriptive authority. I don't target them, but I learn from what they do how to best address some of the gaps that clinicians may have when it comes to prescribing opioids. So I'm not going to go to a doctor and say, you suck, but I will go talk to a doctor and say, you know, best practice guidelines say that, you know, the best way to prescribe opioids would be to use, you know, one of the smart sets that um, our electronic uh, medical record suggests so that when you are talking to the patient, um, it reminds you that you need to put down a diagnosis. It reminds you that you need to perform imaging or certain labs, uh, conduct a pain management panel at least once a year, write a controlled substance agreement if you have chronic pain patients. It allows you to, you know, it gives you options like, um, well, here are some non-opioid alternatives that you can start with, and then you can start with opioids, starting with the lowest dose, and then you know working your way up if necessary. Um, just different things that it allows me to discuss with physicians, so that you know when they're aware of the tools that are in front of them, they are better able to take care of the patients, um, and then hopefully we have better outcomes for everybody. Christine shared that her team has also partnered with Cleveland Center for Health Affairs in creating an opioid safety toolkit to enable other hospital systems in setting up similar programs to Metro's, including peer review and academic detailing. They can do so easily without having to reinvent the wheel. So basically, we provide them a toolkit with everything that um, we've done so they don't have to do it themselves. In addition, we're collaborating uh, with the Northeast Ohio Medical School on a course that will be housed with the Center for Health Affairs that will provide anyone with prescriptive authority um, con continuing medical education regarding opioids and um, opioid use disorder. So uh, if you are a prescriber who can write for medicated-assisted treatment or what we like to refer to as medications for opioid use disorder, you have to get eight hours of continuing medical education specifically in opioid use disorder. And the goal is to have all eight of those hours available for practitioners should they choose to do them there. The Office of Opioid Safety is also working on an initiative to increase the number of providers who are able to prescribe the life-saving MAT option of Suboxone. It works very well, and it prevents patients from relapsing. As you know, in the past, you had to undergo training to become X-wavered or to be able to prescribe Suboxone for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Recently, HHS, the Health and Human Services guidelines, just came out that state that anyone with his or her own DA number can treat up to 30 patients with Suboxone, up to 30 patients. All they have to do is fill out what they refer to as a notice of intent, um, and they fill that out. And this makes this valuable drug accessible to some so many more people. And I'm hoping this will help remove some of the stigma patients face when seeking treatment. So it was very difficult for patients to have access to Suboxone. Now, maybe with the relaxation of the rule that allows doctors to have to treat up to 30 patients without having to be X-wavered, hopefully 
more primary care physicians will take it upon themselves to treat those patients. And the more we, you know, the more patients we treat, then we don't have to have the horrific number of opioid overdoses that we've had in the past year, especially due to the pandemic. Christine and her team work with prescribers to make sure they're following best practice guidelines, but that isn't their only goal. I found that prescribers really, really care about their patients and they want to offer them the best possible treatment or therapy for the problems they may encounter. I like to look at my job as somebody who provides them with the right tools to do their job. Because if they find it easy to do the right thing, then it's a win-win situation for everybody. Aside from creating an even more dire need for the work of the education team, the COVID-19 pandemic has necessitated some strategic changes and increased creativity in connecting with the public. We had to learn how to educate individuals virtually, which was not something that we did very often. You know, we were much more used to having that face-to-face interaction, which, as I think everybody has experienced in this past year, you've kind of had to get past that learning curve. And this year, despite the pandemic, despite, you know, some of these challenges, we were still able to educate people throughout the community in the Metro Health system. They also initiated the Project Dawn Expanded Mobile Unit due to the shutdown of many services dedicated to treatment and harm reduction. The Project Dawn Expanded Mobile Unit, um, it is a harm reduction service that's in a low threshold environment. And we actually opened it in April of 2020, um, due in part to the massive release of incarcerated individuals um, that were in the Cuyahoga County Correctional Center. Um, And at that time, we identified this huge, significant need to provide these resources and linkage to care. However, because so many services were shut down in our communities, our Project Dawn team realized this this great need, especially for a syringe exchange program, safe injection supplies, etc. And these services have been proven time and time again to help decrease the outbreaks of HIV and HCV within communities. And the RV is actually parked directly across from uh, Metro Health's main campus. And we're really hoping to expand this program because it has been incredibly successful and very much appreciated in the community. The staff um, that we have on our RV, you know, they, they are building these amazing relationships with this very marginalized and very vulnerable population. Um, you know, not only are they providing you know, the syringes for them to be able to exchange, doing the testing, the safe injection supplies, linkage to care, as well as resources. The education team has found that word of mouth has been spreading throughout the community regarding the services the Office of Opioid Safety offers, and they're dedicated to showing up for the community as consistently as possible. There, there were a couple days here and there that, unfortunately, the RV was out because of repairs and whatnot. And despite incredibly hot weather, our staff was sitting out there underneath the canopy tent, still trying to be there for, for their patients. And the relationships that they're developing are just absolutely inspiring and phenomenal because they're building this trust when so many of our patients, the system has failed them. And... They are there with them the whole way, and that when when they're ready to start treatment, they're there to help with the linkage to care. And the syringe uh, exchange program, just, just within one month alone, there were over 35 
thousand syringes exchanged. A lot of the requests that the education team has received throughout the pandemic have been for content that explores the connections between substance use disorder, mental health conditions, and coping mechanisms. Let's be honest, throughout this whole pandemic, you know, there's been, you know, constant stressful, stressful news. There's been such a an incredible amount of of loss, Lo- you know, loss of life, loss of of jobs, of incomes. Um, there's been so many triggers for people that have been in recovery. And how many people can honestly say that they've been thriving through this whole pandemic? You know, mo- most people are struggling, not just individuals with mental health conditions and substance use disorders, but all of us. You know, th- we, we're entering a time that very few people in our society have, have, you know, lived through anything like this before. And with all of our educational programming that we've been doing, um, you know, people are really, really trying to, to focus on that, that mental health piece. Um, and, you know, coping skills, self-care strategies has been huge. Our education team have been getting more and more requests than we have, um, certainly, you know, throughout early 2020 um, and and especially now as the communities are starting to open up and we're finding, you know, safer ways to be able to congregate. Honestly, we we're, we're getting different requests, um, you know, from all sorts of organizations in the community, um, as well as all different um, age levels and um, and the needs of the audience are certainly different than what they were over a year ago. Christine shared that emerging data shows post-COVID-19 patients are using more and more medications in the 30-day period after being diagnosed, and that some of the medications being prescribed may be contributing to a generally negative trend. Increased use of opioids, increased use of benzodiazepines to treat things like malaise and fatigue and pain, anxiety, sleep disorders. And to to the effect that, you know, we're starting to see an increase in the prescribing trend of those medications in the treatment of that patient population. So that's a little bit of a disturbing trend. And I wanted to make sure that the team of prescribers treating our long COVID patients at Metro Health were aware of that so they can think about that when treating their patients. So instead of reaching for a benzodiazepine to treat anxiety, that is usually not the first line uh, course of recommended treatment, um, but other medications can be used first and then you know, if all of those fail, then we can consider benzos. Um, same with opioids. It would be a good idea for them to know that there is a tre- an upward trend of prescribing for opioids. But at our hospital, let's first consider non-opioid treatments first. And those can be both pharmacological and other different kinds of therapies that should be used with those patients. The education team and the entire Office of Opioid Safety is doing their best to encourage further understanding of this epidemic and more thorough distribution of educational and recovery-enabling resources, even in the face of intensely negative 2020 data, and even in the face of potentially worse numbers emerging. So far, the information for 2021, that trend upward is incredibly disturbing. And it really, it's up to us to to do something about it. Um, Just by early April of 2021, the medical examiner had issued a public health alert 
Um, and he had said that Cuyahoga County had already suffered at least 79 suspected overdose deaths just in the month of March. So again, you know, a year after the pandemic, we were already, you know, looking at that many deaths, you know, at least 79 suspected overdose deaths. And so far, you know, we really only have some of the data from the first quarter of 2021. So it's still a little too early to project with certainty how fatal that this year will be. But again, that upward trend is incredibly disturbing, and we're seeing this all across the country. Globally, mental health has taken a massive hit throughout the pandemic for all age groups. The data, once again, tells a grim story, especially for young people. We know that You know, roughly 30 to 45 percent of adolescents, young adults um, with mental health disorders also have co-occurring substance use disorder. And then about 65 percent or more of youth with substance use disorder also have a mental health disorder. And young people have proven especially vulnerable to mental health issues, especially related to COVID-19. You know, having school closures, um, you know, trying to overcome the obstacles of learning in an entirely different way, learning remotely, having to isolate from friends due to social distancing have been major sources of stress and loneliness for a lot of our young people. And a review of the international literature has identified incredibly high rates of anxiety, depression, as well as post-traumatic symptoms among children during this pandemic. And there was actually a report from the CDC that had showed that starting in April of 2020, the proportion of mental health-related emergency room visits for children that were under 18 among pretty much all pediatric ER visits increased and actually ended up staying elevated through October. And there were different students uh, that had been surveyed at seven American universities, and they reported largely negative impacts of COVID on their psychological health as well as their lifestyle behaviors. And we also know that anxiety, depression, and adjustment disorders all exploded in the spring of 2020 in, in that 13 to 18 years age group. And overall, it was increasing 80 to 90 percent um, compared to years prior. And unfortunately, self-harm also increased about by 91 percent in March, so early on in the pandemic. And that self-harm increase was among youth, again, in that age group of 13 to 18. And then in April, it nearly doubled at 100 percent in comparison to the previous April. So again, as as we mentioned earlier, um, you know, nobody has been really thriving throughout this pandemic. Our children especially have um, were impacted immediately. Again, we saw we saw those numbers in early March and April. And when you have to think back and reflect on how did you feel at that time of the pandemic? You know, there was no hope for any type of vaccines or treatment. There seemed to be no end in sight. And Now, you know, a little over a year later, a lot of us are still struggling with this because while there has been the hope of of treatments, um, the fatalities seem to be decreasing, vaccination access seems to be increasing, there's still that that worrisome feeling about what's going to happen with variants, um, you know, what's going to happen with our economy and everything. So we're really only starting to see just the tip of the iceberg of what is yet to come in in the years uh, coming down the road. And again, it, it doesn't matter 
where you're from, your level of education and everything, you know, mental health has been impacted and substance use disorder has been impacted. And as we know, both of those conditions do not discriminate. The first thing that the education team has to do is make sure they are communicating the fact that substance use disorder or opioid use disorder is not a moral failing. We have to make it known that this is a chronic illness that needs to be regarded and treated like every other chronic illness out there, that people will relapse, that people will stumble, they will fall, and we need to be there to help pick them up and get them to the place they need to be. So to me, that is the most important thing we have to do. We have to normalize the care for substance use disorder. That's number one. The other thing I like to think about is we need to make sure that uh, we offer people the care they need with respect to pain relief that doesn't include the use of opioids. We can offer alternative therapies. Um, if If medications are not working, there are definitely many modalities that can be used to help people with their pain in order to live a more comfortable lifestyle. Pain is always going to be there. Learning to live with pain is just, uh, I don't want to say it's a fact of life, but it truly is. Pain teaches you that there's something wrong and that you have to do something in order to temper it or mitigate it and make yourself feel a little bit better. And that may include things like physical therapy, occupational therapy, Um, using different techniques, and actually those things are offered at Metro Health. There are so many different ways providers can help treat pain and teach people to live with a level of pain. Frankly, living can be a painful experience. Turning off pain altogether is no longer the goal, but learning to manage it and cope with it is. To me, it's very important to address pain, but in a healthy way and not maybe just you know, throw medications at it. We have to look at it from many different perspectives in order for us to be able to manage it and take care of it. You know, it's essential that we understand that substance use disorder is a chronic relapsing brain disease. It is not a moral failing. And actually, the average American will relapse approximately seven times before they'll be able to maintain um, successful recovery. And increasing awareness through advocacy and education is absolutely imperative um, in order to combat the devastating pandemic and opioid epidemic. Many variables can exacerbate the challenges of recovery, especially in a global pandemic. With so many lives lost and so much uncertainty still on the horizon, those who struggle maintaining their mental health or sobriety have had an incredibly difficult time. Even those that have not struggled as much with those problems we have struggled. And it's important to know that there is a chance to recover. There is a chance to prevent this. And now, more than ever, we need to remember that in a world where you can be anything, be kind, because we truly never know what someone else may actually be going through. Next time on One Path. That made me realize, like, okay, Like, you need to change things or else you're going to end up in jail or end up dead from an overdose. We talk with Matthew Hawkins about his experience in recovery with Metro Health. One Path with Metro Health is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, written, and engineered by Hannah Ray Leach and mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Mike Tobin, Carolyn Tobian, Joan Papp, Joya Riff, 
and the entire Department of Opioid Safety in making this show possible. You can learn more about OnePath, access opioid safety resources, and get connected with our team at OnePathPodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.